Thank you for tuning in to this message from Kingdom Ears International, headquarters located in Flagstaff, Arizona. Thank you, Missy. Um, just want to thank the hosting team for setting this environment. It's really powerful to just even walk in here tonight. And um, I just, I want us to, I, I don't know if you guys can all feel it, but the upheaval and the level of just pressure that we talked about last week as we enter into Shabbat and as we enter into this big transition. Um, one of the things I want us to be mindful of as we do communion, I'm going to have mom light the candles here in a minute, but I want you to be mindful of what that represents because I think it's something very significant for us to remember, especially in this time, is that Shabbat is one of the major distinctions that sets us apart from the world is Shabbat. There's nothing else like it. And something that's customary to Shabbat is having the glory of your house light the candles to begin Shabbat. There's several uh, places in scripture where it talks about the Father's word being like a flame. And there's nothing more beautiful than the mother of a house setting your family apart by being a keeper of the Father's words in the house. And so every time we engage in communion throughout this night season, I want you to think about the darkness that we are surrounded by on every side. But as, a, as the glory of the house, as the mother of a house, as the bride in the house, she has the role to kick off and distinguish Shabbat from the rest of the week by piercing the darkness with symbolizing his words. Yeah. And that's what we're called to do. As we embrace the Father's voice, the words that proceed from his mouth, that's what we're doing. So I want us to remember that and have Mom go ahead and light the Shabbat candles and kick us off. And uh, another thing that I, I think about when she lights these candles is... Last week, it was very apparent to me as she shared the Torah portion and her teaching about that, that we got to experience the spirit of the law first. As we engage the law, we're getting the spirit of the law straight from the mother of the house's heart as a direct reflection of the father's heart and his character, right? So as we engage in tonight, just remember that. And we're going to get... I don't even know what she what she has to teach, but I know it's powerful because I live with her and I know how she gets and I know the excitement and the and the passion that comes with that. And so we're gonna get a huge dose of the father's character and the spirit of the law tonight. Um, but I want us to remember this every time we light candles during communion, what that represents. That's his voice that pierces the darkness. Right? And there's nothing better than the glory of a house reminding us of that every time we get together for Shabbat. I um I didn't know if I needed to kind of re talk about you know how service was gonna go and I, I don't feel I don't feel like um I, I need to do that 
but I do want to continue in teaching on the Talit uh, as we bring an aspect of reverence to communion and the personalization of what's happening during communion. Um, I'm sure I, I heard from a lot of people that last week people could feel the difference that communion brought. And it doesn't mean that communion ever before wasn't um, uh, significant, but he's by glory to glory to glory, he's adding to us. And something I just want to continually release is that as we're going through all of this, I felt a major shift that essentially we are being reintroduced to him. I know we've, we've said that a lot, but lit, literally Genesis 1-1, we are going through word by word, line by line, starting over again and being reintroduced. And what's happening is as we are reintroduced to him, he's going to confront anything that was not... Um, I don't, I don't necessarily know how to, how, how to say that because it's precept upon precept. So it's not that he's confronting what wasn't, but there's going to be a shift in your heart. What Missy's talking about where what was once familiar will no longer be familiar. Yeah. And what I want to speak to is as we step into this, there is a level of reverence that we are to have. This is not a game. This is not playtime. This is not conversation time. We as a family know how to fellowship. But there is a difference when he shifted us into uh, doing this individually. That individually we are taking a stand during communion very personally to be able to activate what it is that he's doing in that reintroduction into us. And so again, I, I said that last week, but just from the moment we start to the moment that we finish, that this is an aspect of the night season where we are going to be um, basically communing over his work. And it's a, it's a, it's a powerful introduction because he's talking about Shabbat and the whole time I'm like, that is like, the definition of a woman is to keep the flame that would separate and light up. Like their purpose is to go into the dark places and put his word all over it. But the problem is, is everybody says amen to the light being shined. But what happens when it's shining on something that's been hidden? Mm -hmm. Then it's like creepy crawlies. It's exposure, it's, it's chaos, it's, uh, but that is what he's asked us to do. That's what he did. I mean, from Genesis 1-1, when he began to separate, that's what we learned last week. He is the God of separation, Amen. which seems like, but we, we grew up with unite. Yeah. But without a separation, you don't have anything to unite to. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Without a leaving, you can't cling. <laughs> Yeah. Right, and we're gonna get, we're gonna get it. We're gonna get into this tonight. But he is a god of order. He is a god of absolute. Um, he he will he will he will take a pile of rocks and he will go through the colors and say, I want pink here, I want blue here, I want red here, and he wants to be able to put things in position and in place. And so what's happening as we do this is it's like we're taking a stand to be reintroduced to who he is. 
in such an original state and it's so personal. Yeah. Um, and so I just, I want to just reiterate, I know a lot of words, Megan's been stirred over, you know, she's been putting on kingdom airs about becoming, we are becoming unfamiliar with what was once familiar. Even communion can become so familiar, his body, his blood. But now what he's saying is during this time, because of his body, because of his brokenness, it is the only reason that this Torah portion that's about to be read before you, it is the only reason why it can even be inside of you. You had no access to it prior to the Messiah. You had no access to it other than on the outside reading it and trying to obey from a separated place. You had no right to it being written inside of you without his body. It's a whole different... You know, no longer are we coming to the communion table for salvation. Yeah. By his stripes, I am healed. Yes. Yes. By his stripes, you are healed. Why? Because you quoted a scripture or because you were obedient to do the things he, that he has commanded you to do to, to be a set-apart people. And through that, the blessing will give you his healing. He's not a free card. It came at a cost. And we're, we are... Um, enjoying in his suffering by saying by your body by, by because of you this can be put inside of me and then when we move to the wine his blood not just by his blood am I sanctified are you by his blood sanctified yes but because of his blood I can seal that it is finished it is done in his blood and his blood is in me so communion is a whole different, at least for me, it feels like a whole different arena, especially when we begin to read through these scriptures and be reintroduced to him. So I just wanted to reiterate that reverence portion of communion. Um, you know, just to reiterate, we are going to have after party with us. We are doing this together corporately, not the heads of households over families, but individually. That um, How this is going to look is we're going to, uh, we're basically going to start communion we're going to be reading the Torah portions, and then we will be coming after the Torah portion to come grab your elements individually, go back to where you, you know, where you were, and we will stay in that place, and then we will repeat uh, what it is that he's asking us to repeat during the next session. Okay. Uh, one thing before we get started is he has asked me to minister a little bit on and teach on the Talit because I felt very strongly as leaders. We did not want to reintroduce who he was without his covering in and of itself. And so something that we personally have is the Talit in our family, but it hasn't necessarily been made public. And Talits are very much a public symbol. But it's hard when you come into a, um, a family that it's new or unfamiliar and not necessarily talk about it or, or teach about it. So I want to just take a little bit of time each time before communion and talk about the Talit as it's being introduced because I want our hearts to grab a hold of what it is that he's doing so that when that conviction comes, you are free when you feel like you are to bring your your Talit or your covering to be able to engage in that. Does that sound okay? So uh, Last week, uh, as I was talking about the Talit, there was three attributes that I'm going to be really honing in on for sure over this next month. The three attributes of the Talit was, one, I don't know if you guys remember this, but it was to remind us. 
So the first attribute doesn't necessarily mean it's the first one, but one of the attributes of the tzitzit and the tali is to remind us. We're being reminded of who we are, we're being reminded of who God is, and we're also being reminded of what that requires of us to say that we know who we are. It's one thing to grab a hold of your identity and have no accountability to what your identity is. Don't go around claiming that you've got somebody else's last name if you're not going to act like you've got their last name. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So, And then, if you're going to claim who he is, don't go around claiming who he is if you don't know who he is. So part of, part of this is to rem- remember who he is, remember who we are, but also remember what he's required of us for us to say who he is in the first place. Okay? So that's the first one. The second one is that the talit, there's an aspect of it representing authority. So we're going to get into all of that, not necessarily tonight, but there is an aspect of, of a talit and the garment that represents authority. This is super important to understand. A lot of people think talit is a Jewish thing. But in Numbers, it talks about a tzitzit. It talks about the garment. It talks about the four corners. It didn't say to you Jews. I command you Jews for all of generations to wear a tzitzit. It says to the sons of Israel. So if we're going to honor Shabbat and we're going to honor the feast, why would we not know what a tzitzit is? It's not a Jew thing. It's a Hebrew thing. Okay? And so there's an aspect of understanding, though, what is a tzitzit? What is that garment? Because Yeshua wore one. And if you don't understand that Yeshua wore one, you won't understand a lot of the uh, a lot of the gospel and what was happening when when the scriptures talk about grabbing his hem. So there's an aspect of being able to understand this because there is absolute authority. What I mean by that is when we get into this teaching, won't it take on a different place in communion, being under his covering, knowing I am I am getting as close to symbolically as possible of holding on to his garment that meant that the issue of blood would be healed? And being able to grab a hold of that hem and know that his authority will be felt and transferred to me when I touch it? Super powerful, but we miss all of that. We miss a lot of we we miss a lot of what's in the gospel because we don't understand some of these things. The third thing is is that Talit uh, has an has an opportunity to opportunity to represent royalty and holiness. So those are the three attributes we're going to go over tonight. What I wanted to focus on is the remembrance. So if you remember the um, in Numbers where it talks about the tzitzit, the actual Hebrew Strong's, the definition of the tzitzit actually means tasseled fringe, but the root word of that is feather or wing. So we brought to you know uh, we brought to life Psalms 91, that whole protection scripture of what it means to be under His wing. I mean, how many of us have thought about that? What does that mean to be under? Does Yahweh have wings? Right? So it's like, what does that mean to be under the protection of his wing? Well, the reference there is the same word as titsi and a garment and what you wear on a daily basis. Not a secret thing that you have to go hide off and try to find, you know, being under his wing, but being under his authority and his protection. Um... What I wanted to highlight tonight was that on the um, the garment is that there are four corners, and I felt like I wanted to highlight um, the four corners because what this does when you are holding on to his wing or his feather or his arm, 
you know, I talked about there's a, there's a couple other things. There's some root words that go into flourish. So another way to look at it is when I'm under this, it is a place to flourish. Right? So I'm underneath his wing, and in that wing is nourishment and an ability to flourish. So you're, you're saying in this place, in this place, it's an opportunity to flourish. And in this place, I can blossom. Okay? And in this place is where I gaze. All the root words to Titsit have to do with feather, wing, gold, gaze, flourish, blossom. So in this place, this is where I blossom. Remember when Padrino was talking about at Tabernacles? If I can leave you anything, we will not always be here. If we can leave our sons and daughters anything, find a tabernacle. Get in there and dwell because that's where you're going to remember who that is what he originally purposed was to dwell and to be with him. And that's why that's also the end and the beginning is to dwell and to be with him. So you get under a tent. You get into the tabernacle. That's this. Okay. This is where you gaze. This is where you flourish. This is where you blossom. And what I wanted to really specifically talk about with the Talit is that it's specific that there are four corners. And it specifically says on the four corners of your garment. And to me, I think that that's significant because there are many scriptures that talk about the four corners of the earth. So where, what do you have access to under the four corners? Okay. There are four dimensions of his love. You are activating a fourth dimension, being under the four corners. Right? Three-dimensional is how we see fourth-dimensional and even beyond is where he is. And so there's four dimensions to his love. There's four corners of the earth. The other thing that I wanted to uh, present is yod heh vav And his name in and, of, in and of itself, the breath, is four. yod heh vav Being able to be under his protection and what it is that you're activating and who he is. Amen? Yeah. I mean, if he sends his son and the son wears one, right? So, um, I want to read actually numbers again because I told you that it represents holiness, I told you it represents authority and royalty, but in the actual scripture tonight is so powerful, um, going down to. Number uh, verse 40 in number 16. This way, this way you will remember and obey all of my mitzvot and you will be holy to your God. So you are looking at the commandments, you're remembering them, and you're doing them and being holy. All of that is under under this scripture about TC. So you are looking at the law. You are remembering the law. You are doing the law. And you are becoming and being holy. Amen? Amen. So that is uh, what I also wanted to be. When you're remembering all of this, one thing I want us to remember is that this is a public display of all that I just said. 
The reason why I bring that up is it's so easy for us to represent a football team. Okay? It's not about the garment itself. In fact, the scriptures never even say anything about a garment. It's talking about a titi. So think about that. The sweatshirt that you wear that says Cardinals. I don't know. I don't know football. Is that a football yeah. team or is that just baseball? Yeah, if you're wearing a sweatshirt that says Cardinals, is it about the sweatshirt? It's about what it says. And when you when you wear, if I wear something, unless it's a hand-me-down and I'm just walking around, I don't know. But if I'm going to choose to wear something that says something on it, then I know what it is that I'm representing. And I'm telling the world I identify and stand with this team. So it would just be like, what would Jesus do bracelet or anything like that? This is just the original. I don't need a what would Jesus do bracelet. And I don't need a, I mean, sweatshirt that says Yeshua is awesome. But in the end, what I need is this. This is what I identify with. It's not the garment. It's what it is that I'm under and what I'm representing in such a public display. Amen? Amen. So I just want us to... You know, um, to remember that, that what you wear to make public, it's representing who and what you stand with or for. All right? It's showing who you are. It's showing who Yah is. And it's showing what is required of you to display that we know who they are, who we are and who that he is. Amen? So all of that is with this, which is why I want to continually bring that forward. So right now we're going to actually do our Torah portion. So I'm going to have Misty, we drew her name, and have Misty come up here, and then Dad and I are going to stand on either side of you. Are you okay with that, to come up here and read it? So we're going to have Misty read the full Torah portion. We're going to do what we did last week. We're going to stand for this, and we're going to let her read these words over us. And again, we've been studying this all week. So tonight is like the icing on the cake to be able to really let it solidify uh, and send us into uh, what we'll be shifting into next week. These are the genealogical records of the heavens and the earth when they were created. At the time when Adonai Elohim made land and sky, now no shrub of the field had sprouted yet, for Adonai Elohim had not caused it to rain upon the land, and there was no one to work the ground. But a mist came up from the land and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then Adonai Elohim formed the man out of the dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils a breath of life, so the man became a living being. Then Adonai planted a garden in the Eden in the east, and then he put the man whom he had formed Then Adonai Elohim caused to sprout from the ground every tree that was desirable to look at, good at, and good for food. Now the tree of life was in the middle of the garden, and also the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. I'm just going to say them like I know them. The one that winds around the whole land of the Havilah, where there is gold. The gold out of that land is good. Bedellium and lapis lazuli stones are also there. The name of the second river is Gion. It winds around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It runs east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. Then Adonai 
<clears throat> Elohim took the man and gave him rest in the garden of Eden in order to cultivate and watch over it. Then Adonai Elohim commanded the man, saying, From all the trees of the garden you are most welcome to eat, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil you must not eat. For when you eat from it, most assuredly you will die. Then Adonai Elohim said, It is not good for the man to be alone. Let me make a well-matched helper for him. Adonai Elohim had formed from the ground every animal of the field and every flying creature of the sky. So he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called them, each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and to the flying creatures of the sky and to all the animals of the field. But for the man, he did not find a well-matched helper for him. Adonai Elohim caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Adonai Elohim built the rib which he had taken from the man into a woman. Then he brought her to the man. The man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one is called woman, for from the man was taken this one. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now both of them were naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. But the serpent was shrewder than any animal of the field that Adonai Elohim made. So it said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from all of the trees of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, Of the fruit of the trees we may eat, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it. Eat of it, and you must not touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You most assuredly won't die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a thing of lust for the eyes, and that the tree was desirable for imparting wisdom. So she took of its fruit, and she ate. She also gave to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loin coverings. And they heard in the sound, they heard the sound of Adonai Elohim going to and fro in the garden in the wind of the day. So the man and his wife had hid themselves from the presence of Adonai Elohim in the midst of the tree of the garden. Then Adonai Elohim called the man and said to him, Where are you? Then he said, Your sound. I heard it in the garden, and I was afraid, because I am naked, I hid myself. Then he said, Who told you that you are naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. Adonai Elohim said to the woman, What did you do? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Adonai Elohim said to the serpent, Because you did this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above every animal of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust will you eat all the days of your life. I will put animosity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head, and he will crush, and you will crush his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pain from conception to labor. In pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be towards your husband, yet he must rule over you. Then to the man he said, Because you listened to your wife's voice and ate of the tree which I commanded you, saying, You must not eat of Cursed is the ground because of you. With pain will you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles will sprout for you. 
You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow will you eat food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Now Adam named his, his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living things. Adonai Elohim made Adam and his wife tunics of skin, and he clothed them. Then Adonai Elohim said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So now... Um, he stretched out his hand and he takes also from the tree of life and eats and lives forever Adonai Elohim sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken and he expelled the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he had cherubim dwell along the whirling sword of flame to guard the way to the tree of life Okay, so if everybody can grab their communion elements, there are four different stations to be able to grab from. So be aware of wine and juice because everybody's doing it individually, kids. And behind you is also more. Um, and then just remember the words from last week about the wine and what we're engaging about the promised land. So go ahead and grab your elements and then we'll do it together. Okay, so again, this is going to be, um, we'll just leave some time for it to be real. I don't want anyone repeating this until it's real for you. I know Derek had given a testimony last week that he had to say it several times over and over and over again. Megan had specifically told me that it was extremely powerful to hear each and every individual person make that declaration for themselves. So. And remember, we're going we're gonna to start with his body. Like I said, it's because of his broken body that we even have access to this word. And if anything, to be filled with gratitude that we can reread such a foundational chapter um, with all that's going to be dispensed tonight and all that's already been dispensed as you've dined on this chapter, um, that he is unwinding some things to bring us back to the original intent. And so it's because of his body that we have access to this. So when you're ready, you can partake of it. And what we're going to say is this Torah portion is written on my heart. So specifically, this Torah portion is written on my heart. And when that's in there, then you can partake of Now when you're ready, we're going to move on to his blood. We've learned a lot about his blood, that there is a seal. What this is, is actually sealing a vow. When you declare a vow, it means something in heaven. A lot of people don't, they take, they take vows lightly. Once a vow is made, there's excuses or... It didn't mean anything when I said it, or I was emotional, or I didn't really understand, or I've grown out of that vow. There's something about the word and practicing that when you, when we, when we speak it out and we seal it with His cup, that we are promising that we are exchanging vows. And so, with this, the words are when you partake of it is to say out loud, "It is finished." The vow that you are making, it is finished. While they're doing that, I just wanted to remind us that when we're doing communion, 
and we're saying this Torah portion is written on my heart. This is what's so amazing about who, who he is and what he's doing. You're just bowing to that one scripture, right? We don't worry about, like when you say it is finished, sometimes it's this over, like every, like it is finished or it's this big and it's like, he's so good that he's saying Genesis 2-4 to 3-24, it is finished. Does that make sense? Like when I heard that in the spirit, it wasn't this lofty, like, by his stripes, it is completely done. And it is, but it is completely done as I receive, as I digest, as I vow, as I exchange, as I'm obedient. And so just remember, it is finished is what was just read. It is it is finished. And, you know, and preceptive, I guess I could say Genesis 1-1. To Genesis 3:24, we will continually say it is finished as we get all. I mean, for the next three years, going through all of the Torah, it is finished. It is finished. It is finished. everyone like solemn because of a feeling in the room or is there something else are you anticipating what I'm about to release <laughs> just want to read the room right um I am I, I, this happened last week um, where I am so stirred about I am so stirred about these chapters and yet I have no idea how or what is going to come out I mean I it is inside of me I have been meditating on it I have had a word I have multiple words but I don't necessarily know to what degree or what order or what I, I just I don't know um Outside of us going through the Torah, if anybody knows Dad and I, the one chapter that our entire foundation is on is chapter 2. Right? I mean, family Development Ministry. This is our chapter. The title could have been, well, it says the sin of Adam and Eve, so not the sin of the brewers, but it could have been the foundation of... So there's already so much, and yet he's reintroducing me, and I am going to release things tonight I have never taught before. I have never seen before. I have never understood before. That is what I mean by being unfamiliar. This is, if anybody knows, I have preached on Eve and Adam and sin and the tree of life, and I... Yeah. Over and over and over and over again. And yet, everything tonight is completely brand new. Yeah. Good. So, um, and I, 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 I do have to have one disclaimer. <laughs> I'm debating whether or not I should get my gift out. <laughs> Um, okay, yeah. 
So last week, Dad does this whole family meeting on how he's going to protect family with all that. And that's awesome. And he's going to. But everybody knows, or anybody who doesn't know, you're going to know, I don't care for guns. I don't. He can do all that. I don't. I don't. He always wants to take me out shooting. I'm like, I'm fine. I, I don't. I just. It's not my thing. But. <laughs> knives. Are my thing. And there's something about a knife. That I just. It's going to sound weird. But I have always said. I am an intimate fighter. And if you're going down. I want to watch it right in front of my face. I know that sounds Mormon. Morbid. <laughs> there's something, and I, I'm not trying to dismiss the shooting, but there's something about shooting to some degree is a little. It's a little. Cowardice. From what? From I'm not from my perspective, because there's just you know what I mean. If somebody was gonna come at me and they're gonna like rape me, I feel like it'd be like easy to like pop them one, and they don't have to like suffer. And it's like from far away. But if they're like coming at me, I want their I want their throat, and I wanna I wanna like feel it. Okay, so you're learning a couple things about your mom. <laughs> but that is how I am in the spirit. I am an intimate fighter, and I will yeah. get its jugular, and I will watch it go down. Yeah. And if it doesn't, I'll cut it again. Yeah. And then I will serve it for dinner. So, I got a gift today. And it has established colors on it. So if you need to be established, <laughs> do this whole thing. You can do some damage. So what's crazy is I've had this word brewing ever since I read chapter two. Like I obviously I know chapter two, but as soon as I started reading chapter two, I started getting majorly stirred. Um and I up until this point in my life, when a word like this comes, I will typically, he knows the word I have. He lives with me. So what I'll do is I'll say, well, I don't know if I can deliver a word like this, so I'm going to need you to handle this word. Specifically because I'm a female, and this word tonight is to the men. The reason why I have that knife is for my son. Okay, so <laughs> they're all like. So, typically, up until this point, I would say if there is a word that I need to deliver to the sons or to men, I will hand it to him because as a female, I'm going to come across as a woman or a female or I'm going to come across as a wife. So, I'm here to address the husbands. I'm not coming as your wife, and I'm not coming as a female. I'm coming as your mom. And I have a word for the whole family, specifically for the sons. 
okay? Mm -hmm. It's for everyone, yeah. but it is really going to hit on the sun. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I just, I needed to give that disclaimer. It's good. So I thought about shifting some things on the couch and putting every single man right front and center. But then I noticed that we're actually missing a lot of them. So I'm just feeling it out by the spirit. But if you feel led and you want to come closer, But I, I did. I felt like in the spirit, like if it's not happening in the physical, in the spirit, I literally saw in a vision. I like I and I recognize Jason and Derek. You guys have to be positioned a certain way. But I saw in the spirit telling every single son, sit down. Okay. But this is not because it's you. It's because of what you carry and yeah. what I want to speak to yeah. to be able to unwind some things that have been taught. If anything has been taught in the church, especially in the arena of marriage counseling, it's been chapter two and it's been all damn lies. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. It has been absolute lies and it's been the foundation of your entire life to function out of this place. And outside of the proper filter, it will set you up for absolute chaos. Because our entire role on this earth, I've said it before, is to remember who you are and to govern from that place. The first place you're going to govern is your house. So if you do not remember who you are, how can you govern in that place? Well, you first need to remember who you are as man, as male, and as female. Right? We need to know our roles or we have no business governing, governing anything. And foundationally, we've been lied to about our roles based off this chapter. So we're governing, governing from a false place. So I want to untwist some things so we know our roles so that we can properly govern. Amen? Amen. Okay. So like I said, I don't know how this is all going to come out, but there are about four things that I want to touch on tonight on this chapter. And... Um, this chapter draws our attention to the understanding of independence and dependence. This is the beginning of mankind's I can do it myself. So I'm hitting at a lot of things because that's pride. And anyone that has tendency, which is all of us, to say I don't need anyone, I don't need anything, and I don't need Yahweh, and I don't need family, and I can do it on my own, this is where it starts. So the mo it's a bigger picture. The moment you operate, I can do it on my own, you're activating chapter two. In the twisted version, not in the untwisted version, where you know your role and you're, you're exemplifying who he is. In, in, in his original intent. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Yeah. Like if you are operating out of I can do it myself, then you're actually activating chapter two in its sin nature versus the original role that you are completely dependent on Yahweh and should be completely dependent on your spouse, partner, covenant. Enter any word for your life right now. You are to be completely submitted one to another and completely dependent on one another. This, this concept of I can do it on my own or be independent of one another was not from him. It was from chapter 2. But we don't want to do chapter 2. We want to be in chapter 1. 
right? Or we want to be back in the original intent. Yeshua HaMashiach gave us the opportunity to be able to unwind the role that leads us to destruction that says I can do it all on my own. And he gave us access to become dependent again. Yeah, that's good. So you have to understand in your daily life when you're struggling with isolation or I can do it by myself, then ultimately you're not accessing what you have in undoing the twisted role. You're playing out a bigger picture than yourself. Does that, does that make sense? It's not just, well, I struggle with isolation. No, the struggle is is that the original intent and the blueprint is not being activated in your life. Your identity is being demolished, and you're not walking <coughs> out uh, as a representative of who he is. Yeah. It's a way bigger picture than just I struggle with this. So, okay. I also want to touch on sin. It's the sin chapter where it all started. So I, I want to touch on that. I want to talk about sin in the context of a commandment. What a concept. We've been told sin entered the world, but we are not told that sin is a direct rebellion to a commandment of what they were told to do. That is the definition of sin, is disobeying his instructions. That is sin. It's not a lofty separation or whatever sin is or whatever the latest pastor thought sin was. It is breaking his law is sin. That is the separation. This is the beginning of that. Some people say, well, why was the tree even there? We're going to get into that. The other thing I want to get into is it is still an expression of his character. This entire chapter is such an expression of his character and his redemptive power, even in the midst of our destruction. In the midst of our choices, he is redeemer at least two major times in this chapter. So when we're questioning his character, he comes in as the redeemer before we even know what a redeemer is just through his character because he wants to redeem in the midst of sin. Okay, so we're going to be releasing his character and then we're going to be talking about man and women. Man and woman. Okay, we're going to, we're going to try to tackle all, all that. Now you guys know what will happen if we get attacked. The police will be like, why is this guy got a thousand stab wounds and no bullet wounds? <laughs> you guys will be like, yeah. <laughs> we are, we are I couldn't even strong. get a shot off. <laughs> My wife was in the way. <laughs> Okay, um, I think I'm going to touch on the independence and dependence first. Um, I want us to, I want to just kind of lay this out there because this, this can get pretty confusing if you think about it. Because what is the borderline between maturity and reliance? Like if you think about it, we teach at a very young age that I want my children to do it without me, right? I want them to grow up. I want them to be self-sufficient. I want them to be mature. I want them to grow. I want them to eventually live life and not need me, okay? Well, how do you align that then in the family structure if we are supposed to be completely and utterly reliant and dependent on Yahweh? 
and that the beginning of chaos was to say, I'll do this on my own. Okay? So I want to I want to just touch on that that in the end mankind is created to be 100% and completely dependent on Yahweh. You are a dependent you you there is nothing in you that should strive for independence. And I'm going to give you a picture as to why you don't want that because when I talk about Satan and the picture of what he was given during this curse. I mean, I'll just say it now. Satan was literally given a life of utter independence. He never had to depend on and never could give credit to anything else. Based on the curse that was given to him, he was completely independent or lived had to, had to live a life of independence away from Yahweh. And I'll... I'll get into that, but so when we strive for independence, we're ultimately wanting to serve Satan's kingdom because that is the curse that was given to him is that Satan basically would serve from a place. Well, I mean, I, I can get into that, but ultimately the curse over Satan was to, uh, was to serve, um, basically that he would be, he would live a life sentence of being on the dust. Right? Well, dust is completely abundant. Dust is everywhere. You don't need Yahweh to create dust. Can anybody say amen to that? Like, <laughs> dust is everywhere. So Satan was given a life sentence of being completely independent of Yahweh and couldn't give anything. He, he couldn't give credit. It's dust. Whereas man, even in the curse, was still given a life that would have to be completely dependent on Yahweh to bring forth creation. So independence is actually a characteristic of Satan's kingdom. So when I'm telling my kids that I want you to be able to grow and not need me, what I'm ultimately saying is I want you to grow to not need me, and the more you don't need me, the more reliant you need Yahweh. I'm never raising my kids in pride to be completely independent and completely on their own. Does that make sense? I'm teaching them to not be dependent on me, but I'm teaching my daughters to be dependent on their future husband. I'm teaching my sons to be dependent on their future wives. I'm teaching them that the more you are released from me, the more you will need Yahweh to stand at all. We as a family, us as mankind, our will and always should be dependent on, I'll just say someone, and ultimately the kingdom. Because people can be an expression of the kingdom, right? Um, does that make sense to where you can kind of differentiate, well, how do I handle this lifestyle of, you know, especially Americans, independence, and being mature? That doesn't have anything to do that you shouldn't be, but that the more you are, the more dependent you should be on Yahweh. Okay? So this self-reliant reality where I am the one that exists is completely contrary to everything that Yahweh had set up or set in motion. Okay? Um, oh my gosh, there's so many different ways to teach about. Um, 
ultimately where I'm coming up with this whole I thing is that Yahweh never intended to judge mankind on how well they could satisfy themselves, but how well they satisfied Yahweh by taking care of his creation. In chapter 2, you are given another purpose, and the purpose is to tend to his creation. So you're judged, essentially, on your ability to tend to the creator's creation, and that doesn't have anything to do with yourself. Does that make sense? It was all based on his uh, being able to accomplish his task of tending his garden. Dad has preached on what a garden is also. So remember, when we're talking about servanthood and serving, you are, you are being evaluated, if you will, based on how you tend the lot that's been given to you. And that doesn't have anything to do with how well you're tended for. Okay? Um, I want to. I, I do. I want to. I want to talk a little bit about the tree when I'm talking about dependence, because um, you know, some, some people will ask, well, why would he put a tree there in the first place if he knew what they were going to do? And ultimately, I just want to bring us back around that without the power of choice, there's no relationship. If I did not give him a choice in the matter, I have a robot. Can every female in here say that they would? They they do not want a robot. I mean, so if there's no choice, there's no relationship. And we were taught last week that he is a God that wanted relationship. And so without having the ability to obey or disobey or choose or not choose, he doesn't have a people that he can even have a relationship with. If you want him to choose you, then you have to be given a choice in front of you to choose him back. Or there's no relationship. And it's a powerful thing because in, in a way, he gave us two choices, but he, he had two choices. I mean, you had his creation, and it could have been good, but he chose to make a, a people. And then when you compare humans and Satan and the curse that he gave, he once again, I mean, he has two trees always before him. And yet we'll be ones that will say, well, I want him to choose me, not this. But then he'll say, okay, now here's your choice. And we'll freely not choose, but then get mad at, at, the, at the choice. Does that make sense? Like without choice, the point is that there's no relationship. Without choice, there's no relationship. So when he planted the two trees, he was ultimately saying, number one, here's your creative role in life. That's to tend to my creation. Number two... This is how I need you to do it. And this is where you see the first command, the, ver the first verbal command. And what is it? Don't eat something. The first command has to do with what you eat. And he says, he says, oh, oh my gosh, there, you guys are so, I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get through this. There, there's, there's so much. Remember in the scripture, who did he give that command to? Adam, was Eve even around? Not, I mean, within him, yes, but not even around. The command was given to man and man alone, period. 
So when Satan comes around and asks the female, what did God say? Where did she get that? It was whether or not a man taught her his law. Okay? This tree of good and evil was not a magical tree. It didn't actually give them all knowledge and power. All it did was expose. It wasn't some crazy, lofty thing. It was a tree that through their choice would expose them to their heart's condition. That's all that was. It was that's the wisdom that they gained. They, the wisdom that they gained was that now they've been disobedient to his instructions. So the tree of good and evil wasn't some kind of magical thing that, that was actually going to do something for them. But he knew if you choose to eat of this tree, then ultimately you will know what I know, which is your ability to obey or disobey. Now, therefore, your creative power that I've given you is going to have a thing attached to it because you know something now. Had they not known, they just would have been provided for and all you had to do is cultivate and be in the midst of the garden. Still still utterly dependent, but dependent without work or toil. So when you get to the end of the story and he casts them out of the garden, they still have to be dependent on Yahweh's creation. They still need the rain. They still need the growth to come forward, but now he's got to work for it. So then now they're dependent on him, but then also having having to recognize their independence in the midst of needing to depend. Do you see the chaos? Before it was just dependence. Now I still have to depend on him, but yet I've got to work at the same time. Look at the confusion. Chaos. Okay. Okay. Just making we're we doing okay. Yeah. Okay. Um. Uh, I already kind of touched on this, but I just wanna I just wanna read this because um, right after so when we're talking about dependence and then applying it to what Satan's curse was, um, Satan uh, basically was told you're gonna eat dust. Is what, I, is what I mean by that. So he still tells man, look, you, you don't have access to this, which I'm going to get into, is actually a redeeming, safeguarding thing because it specifically says, if they were to eat of the tree of life, which is eternity, in this state, that, yeah. that's not going to go well. Yeah. So I need a cherubim. I need them out of this place, and I need their I need them to be protected from the self from themselves. Because should they eat the choose of life, the the tree of life, should they eat from the tree of life in this state, it will be stuck for all of eternity. So I need them out. Once I get them out, I'm going to end up sending a redeemer that will get them back in. This is what we need to understand. But for now, he needs them away from the tree of life. And we're over here saying, well, he's a bad father. Why would he do something like that? And it's because he's a good father and he knows it is going to be all of eternity if you rely on yourself to get to heaven. And he knew that they clearly don't have the ability to do that. So he he pushes them away from, from that. So anyway, he tells them, though, to still tend to earth. They still have the same commands. Multiply, take dominion. 
be fruitful, right? All of that did not ever go away with the curse. He just said, now you're going to have to work for it. It sucks, right? But Satan, he says, you get to eat dust. That's what I mean by it's abundant. The devil never has to give God glory where mankind gets to give God glory because no matter what I do, even in the struggle of independence and dependence, I am still completely and totally dependent on God because if he does not bring living creature, if he doesn't bring plant, if he doesn't bring rain, if he didn't bring light, we'd all die. If that sun does not come up, you're out. I don't care how hard you've worked in life. Right? So we're still utterly dependent. Satan, he's not, which to some might be like, man, that sounds really good. But that is our fallen nature. That is Satan's kingdom to be completely and and, and, and uh, all of eternity of curse to be independent from God. How horrible, right? So that's what I meant by that. Um, Okay. Kind of jumping around here, but I want to make sure that I am talking about the the scripture before we get into Adam and Eve that... um, Okay, son. This scripture also talks about our dependence on mankind, essentially. Male and female, okay? When you read the scriptures, I'm going to release this because I'm not actually reading the scriptures. So you may, again, tomorrow, Shabbat morning, reread the scriptures with this revelation. When you reread the scripture, number one, the commandment was given to man. Okay, that's going to be your first, like, Okay. Second, um, yeah, let me just, oh, maybe I do need to read it. In verse 217, are you guys doing okay? I'm just kind of skipping around here. Um, okay, verse 17. But of the, the, he's talking to man. Eve's not around. He's talking to man. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, let me actually just address that. Chapter one is kind of like a synopsis. It was kind of like a, the way I see it was like a summary. You know, neither male nor female, he created them. Like they're created because he, he they were there. That's, that's Genesis one. Chapter two is kind of like inside the summary. And then he's given the details of how it came about. Does that make sense? So it's not like they were created and then they weren't created and then... Eve was there, but then she wasn't there. It's a chapter. It's like a whole summary of how it went. And then chapter two is kind of like, okay, now let me tell you about the plants and and how all this worked and how I actually made Eve, right? It's a little bit more uh, detail. Okay, verse 17. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat. At this point in the story, Eve is not made. Listen to this. (laughs) For when you eat from it, you most surely will die. Okay, there's the command. Next sentence. Then Adonai Elohim said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Interesting. The first opportunity that man has to be obedient to his voice and to do everything awesome, failed. This is the first time he says, this is not good. He immediately says, there's a glitch in the system. This man is not going to be able to follow my commandments. They need a helper. So go to sleep. I think that this is extremely powerful for us to understand our role. The first instruction is given to man and to man alone. And then the very next (laughs) sentence, he says, yeah, this ain't going to (laughs) work. 
I started something, they're not going to be able to finish it. This is not good for a man to be alone. Let me make a well-matched helper for him. Can you kind of see the progression of all the chaos between male and female that's beginning to come? <laughs> but this is by Yahweh's design. Yeah. Okay? Meaning, I want the sons to understand that his commandments from the beginning of time, he is saying it is not good for you to be self-reliant or for you to be by yourself or think you know better or to be all on your own because it is not going to work well for you. So I am giving you a helper to help you understand that you need to be utterly and completely dependent on me and my commandments for you to live. Okay? All right. And you know what's so beautiful in chapter 2? Like within the chapter, puts him to sleep. He creates a woman. I, I don't, I don't want to get into it, but it wasn't the rib. It was half the body. He does this whole thing. He creates woman. And immediately, Adam wasn't like, I don't know. She didn't really talk to me right. I'm not sure if I accept that. Or I'm not sure how I feel about it. It was this one at last. Think about the original intent of the role. Now, females help, and it's like, Jezebel. Or you're too emotional. Or uh, you're controlling. You're trying to dominate me, which we're going to get into that. Right? Yeah. And, and, and so, so you've got this whole, you, but, but the original intent was, this one, at last, there was a joy for men to say, I can't do this alone. There was an absolute, utter dependence and joy to say, I cannot do this alone. This one, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That's good. Isn't that amazing? Okay. She hasn't even done anything yet. She just showed up on the scene. It doesn't, she didn't have to perform. Wow. She didn't have to do anything. She didn't have tasks. She didn't have to provide. She didn't have to. <laughs> she didn't have to, you know, be. She just was created. She just was a being. She just, she just arrived on the scene. This one. At last. Bone of my bone. Flesh of my flesh. Right? And unity. Immediately. I didn't do anything. She, I didn't. Eve didn't do anything to create unity. Just creation, her role, her original intent of who she was being revealed was enough to say, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Not, well, we haven't really been unified today, so, you know, you know, I, I don't really feel connected. <laughs> right? It was just in her original intent, there was unity. Okay. Um, all right. So I want to get into um, the sin part. And this is where ultimately I really am talking to the sons. Because um, Paul talks about it in the Renewed Covenant. That he even identifies and says, through one man, sin came. As Yahweh's representative... Yahweh says it in chapter 2, and Paul says it later on. Through one man, sin came. Through one man, 
sin came. It does not matter the story. It does not matter who ate it first. It does not matter who was lied. It does not matter. The representative for his entire story was through one man, sin came. Period. Okay? Here's what's hard. Because you can see it right away when the story plays out. What did Adam do? She did it. Okay? What is Okay. But uh, before I get to the good part, let me just keep going. Where was Adam when Eve was being spoken to? Next to him. Next to her. She was next to him. Yes. It says in there that he was with her. When she, she turned to give him the apple, it says he was with her. When you look that up in the Hebrew, it doesn't just mean around. He was with her. He was next to her. As the enemy is talking to Eve, does he ever step into the role that he was created for? To give direction? To remind? He knew he was the one who was given the instruction. What happened in that moment? When Satan came to Eve and she fell for it, what happened in that moment? The man was loud. He was quiet. He was silent. What has happened in today's age? Men, women dominate, men are quiet. Women lead, men don't show up. The silence of man... Through one man, through the silence of man, not the action of eating, through the silence of one man, sin entered the earth. It does not say in the Old Testament or in the Renewed Covenant, through Eve, through the eating of the apple, through her deception, sin came. No, it says through one man, through his silence, sin came. This is why I will usually be like, you got this chapter. But I am speaking as a mother that through one man, sin came. Okay? Through the men of this house, chaos will come. Through the men of this house, sin will come. Mm -hmm. Through your silence, sin will come. Yeah. Okay? Now, this is what's so powerful. Through one man, redemption came. Through one man, redemption can come. Through the men in this house, redemption can come. Through the loudness and the leadership of the men in this house, redemption is real. It is in you. Both sin and redemption. How powerful is that? And it has nothing to do with male qualities versus female qualities. He is neither male nor female. He could have sent a daughter, but he didn't. It does not mean a daughter can't. It's just not the structure or the order that he's created. So I'm sorry. Men, it's on you. Because he sent his son. But that does not mean that the women are less than or do not have the qualities. If anything, their qualities are greater because they are an equipped helper to put you back in the role that Yahweh has always intended you for. Mm-hmm. Whereas we've been taught women come under in, in, in a way of not being equal 
so that the men can lead. And that is actually perpetuating the entire problem because then you don't have any helpers and then you've got the mm -hmm. men either being domineering or being completely aloof. Right? You see the men, pendulum swing, either completely silent, have no idea what's going on, or they are absolutely aggressive and they push their weight around. Yeah. Okay? That's a good word. It says that through one man sin entered the earth. And with sin entering the earth, it's past two generations. That is a weighty role. Okay? So that's why we are going to talk about this for a little bit. Um, yeah, one more thing about sin. And the... I just want us to understand when it comes time to looking at the commandments, this is like a little bit of a side note when it comes time to sin, that everything that Eve in, engaged in. So when sin came, obviously we've already talked about this. The lie was, did God say? So the first thing is doubt. So when you're a helper, especially if you've got men that are either domineering or, or, or not around, deception comes by questioning was that what he said? But think about it. Did she even hear him directly? I'm not saying that she didn't hear him directly, but according to the story, it was man who taught her what he said. So in his silence, she then was like, did he? Does that make sense? It wasn't like she knew all of this, and then it was like she was questioning her own, did I hear his voice right? It was probably, did I hear, did I hear my husband right? And he had a chance to say, yes, you did. And because it was like, mm, maybe he didn't. And so then the fall, there's uh, there's three things. It says that she ate, that it was good for food, which is the lust of the flesh. It was a delight to the eyes, which is the lust of the eyes. And then they thought that it would make them like God, which is essentially the pride of life. So when talking about sin and doing it on our own and not following his commandments, the three things are going to come, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Okay? Okay. Are we all right? Okay. I'm going to um, move on to the... In the scriptures, when she ate, it said that the food was good, uh, like that it looked good. So the lust of the eyes, or it was good for the, it was good for the um, to eat, which is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, that it looked good for food, and then wanting to be like God would be the pride of life. So, so when sin comes, that's what it looks like. Mm -hmm. It'll come in as the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But it first starts with doubt. The moment you doubt, then the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life can come in. Um, oh my God. That's good. Keep going. Um, okay, I... I 
Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk a little bit more about the thin part and then I'm gonna move on to uh, Redeemer. Oh, no, I'm just, I'm going to move on to Redeemer. I feel like I'm like, <laughs> um, I, I just, I want us to remember through all of this that his character and who he is and to remind us of who he is. So the two times that I want us to, to, to remember um, is when they, when they first ate and they hid, what did he do? He, he went after them. There is our first clue of what kind of God we serve, what kind of father we have. He knew darn well that they had done the abom. I mean, it was the only thing he asked them not to do, and it was the very thing that they did. And he goes and searches out for them. That is the father we have. That is his character. So when, like I said, when things get muddy and things get wonky, like cast them out of the garden... We can't blame him because there are consequences to our choices, but to remember who he is, that he went after them. Okay, he, he went after them. The second, there's actually three things, and I might be out of order here, but the second, the second one was he actually did atonement in this chapter. When he gives them skin, this is the first time that he basically makes atonement by putting a covering on them that had to do with sacrifice. He made them fully clean in that moment, right then and there. He did not wait a chapter. He did not wait for his son. He made atonement. The word for Yom Kippur is in chapter 2. The skin covering that he gave them set them apart and made them fully clean in that moment immediately. Who told you you were naked? Let me clothe you. Okay. I mean, this is some heavy stuff, especially when we start getting. I mean, that's just the first commandment. There's a lot, and and it get and it gets heavy, and it gets really muddy when we see a side of the father. I think, I think it was on Boxer, so I think it's okay, Regina, for me to share your revelation about the gun. Yeah. She got a revelation watching a good father of the house carry a weapon and recognized when did I believe that at any point, regardless of whatever Regina's in, that he's going to pick that up and take it out on her, but not use the weapon to take out whatever's after her. So he has to be a father that has that level of righteousness or else utter chaos is allowed to be in your life. But we can misconstrue it that it's against us when in reality it's the pressure to be able to safeguard us. Yeah. Okay. Ruach's a little different. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So... He comes, he, he finds them, then he does atonement. The other thing, which we're going to get into uh, detail here, is he, um, he gives a curse. And basically, ultimately, the answer in this chapter as well. So in, in the chapter where everything gets out of order, he gives them a promise. I cannot even imagine 
what type of father that is to have such betrayal and you go out pursuing and seeking after them then you make atonement make them clean and then you give them a promise of how they're going to be clean and how all of mankind is going to be clean through them so you messed up and through you you can bring redemption he does all that in that chapter that's a pretty powerful redeemer for us to be remembering his character based off chapter one, then moving into chapter two. As we get into all of this, what type of father we serve? Because redemption was not a Yeshua thing 500 books later. Redemption was a chapter two thing, and it's in his nature and it's in his character from day one to continually help them get through this because he wants relationship with his children. Okay. Um, I, okay. Does that make sense with the redeemer and the, in the character? Um, okay. So I just, I want to teach on one more thing and I want to talk about the relationship between male and female. So that's the last thing I want to touch on. Are you, are we, are you guys okay for me to keep going? Yeah. Are you okay for me to keep going? Um, because I, I want to I want to identify some things between male and female for us to understand understand this. And I really want to bring to light some of these scriptures that have been super just kind of weird, especially when you read to your husband, you will uh, um, will your desire be and but he shall lord over you. So I want I want to talk about that. All of this is the breakdown of our relationship with Yahweh, but all of this is also the breakdown to covenant. This is the beginning of the breakdown of our relationship with him, and it's the breakdown to covenant, which is why if we can remember and govern out of this place, we will see a revolution on covenant. Not only being restored with him, but we will be restored to our original intent when it comes to male and female, and we will be in his proper order, and there will be redemption for families, yeah. which is why I think that this is so foundational for, for our family because we know that the root cause you know, a fatherlessness and all the things that we've talked about, this is where it is. And understanding our roles in this is what's going to bring that redemption at a root level. Does that make, does that make sense? No. Um, so I want us to understand a little bit of what happened. Basically, the battle of the sexes started right here. <laughs> the battle of the sexes started in chapter 2. Not kings, not when Jezebel came on the earth, not when some spirit started to roll around, not when controlling came a thing, not when, you know, laxity, you know, not when all that came in. Yeah. It came in, the battle of the sexes started here, and you can see it immediately. Man goes quiet, she gets deceived, blame. Accusation. She did it. He did it. I mean, that is like the epitome of the last 20 years of marriage counseling right i mean that's that's the bat that's the battle so so i basically what started in chapter two is the beginning of covenant becoming formless and void he said anything that is formless and void i want to fill he goes and he fills it and the moment he fills it it begins a process of going back to being formless and void that is why it is our role through the Redeemer to remember that he fills up what is formless and void. And we have to unwind what started us on a path to becoming formless and void again. Utter chaos entered in chapter 2. That's why we have to remember chapter 1. That he's a God... That he is the Yah that said, I want to fill and form 
the things that are formless and void. Then in chapter 2, we're, we are given a, a foundational blueprint of what makes you formless and void. But we have to go back to chapter 1, that he wants to fill the form. He wants to make form, and he wants to fill the void. He wants to bring order to the chaos. Well, utter chaos happens in chapter 2. So that's why we have to remember, precept upon precept, who he is. Okay? All right. So I want to break down... I'm just going to read the actual scriptures and the, the curse that he gives. He says, I will increase your pain in childbearing. In pain you will bear children. To your husband will your desire be, but he shall lord it over you. Okay. There's a couple, There's two ways to look at this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to release both of them, and I think they're both powerful. Commentary kind of goes in a couple different directions, but I'm going to release both because I think they're both amazing. Okay? This is the beginning of... Now your marriage is going to suck. And you got to do it by yourself outside of the garden. Right? I mean, essentially, that was, that was, that was pretty bad. I mean, at least, at least they weren't, you know, dependent on dust and, you know, crawling around on their bellies. I mean, that's what a good redeemer is. Even in this, there's still an answer. And I'm going to give you the answer. It doesn't sound like it when you read it, but I'm going to give you the answer. There's still an answer in this. To so say there was no answer was just, you're, you're out. This yeah. is this is for all of eternity. You're you're you are independent. He does all of this. Okay, so this is what's so amazing. Think about this. I will increase your pain in childbearing, women. In pain, you will bear children. But even knowing all that, you're still going to desire your husband. It could have been the end of all multiplication right there if he just stopped it. But he says, but even in that, you will desire your husband. Why do you think we're so dumb we keep having kids? <laughs> Sucks the first time, it doesn't get any better the second time, or the third, right? Amber, the fourth, but you know, I mean, I'm not saying it's going to get better. That When we know who we are, right, we go back to the original ten, it gets better. But, because there is such a thing as a, well, I don't know, never. For the sake of just today, he says that there will be pain with childbearing. And even with all that, you will still desire your husband. He's still good, even in the midst of, but I need you to remember what has happened for all of generations. I need you to remember your dependence on me. Because in life, I still need you to understand death. Pain is death. That's why we use certain consequences that have to do with pain, because it's, it's getting death out of us. So what he was doing was, I need you to remember in the midst of life that there's still death. And you need to remember that for, all, all, for every generation, what has happened. Okay? But even in that, you're still going to desire your husband. I think that's powerful. Okay, there's another way to look at it. Because, and the reason why, and you guys can get into this, but the word, uh, that word desire is only used two other times. Song, Song of Solomon, which is where this concept comes from, that it's, a sec, that it's a sexual thing. That even in childbearing, it will hurt, but you will still desire your husband. is because of the scripture that's used in Song of Solomon. There's another way to look at it, because right after the scripture, we're going to be getting into it with Cain. And he uses that same word, uh, desire, where it says, um, where he warns, I, I believe, he warns Cain that the enemy desires you. The, the enemy is crouching around like a lion and is outside your door and it will desire you. The same word for that is overshadow or dominate or take you out. Wow. So there's another way to look at this scripture. 
to your husband you will overshadow and try to dominate your desire will be to overtake them that's going to be an inclination men you are going to have to master that the battle of sexes has begun so there's kind of two ways to look at it so from from this point forward women Basically, the curse over your life is you are going to try to control, you're going to try to overpower, you're going to try to dominate your husband, and husbands, you're going to have to master that. And it's a picture of how you overcome or master sin that is trying to overshadow you. Hmm. So... Your desire will be for your husband is actually translated that you will try to rule over your husband and you will put your agenda upon him and control him. Here's a powerful statement. I'm going to read it and it's going to sting, daughters. You are going to try to control him to bring order to a sense of, because you want a sense of security to your own insecure position. So you will try to dominate and put your agenda on man in order to create security for your insecure position. And again, this is all a picture of when they were at the tree. She was insecure. Her position was insecure. She, the doubt that came in, man didn't lead. So this in lies the battle of the sexes of what happens with that vicious cycle. Men go quiet, women, women dominate. But they're just insecure, trying to make things secure. So they control. And then men, you know, will either dom really try to dominate or they'll just shut down. Okay? So that is the consequence of sin. I mean, I know it's kind of heavy. But sin enters the world, and there's our consequence. The battle of male and female. The battle of covenant. Which is why we have to understand it in its truth and in our roles so we can untwist and unwind. That is why the renewed covenant is constantly talking about women submit. It's not about, well, you don't know what you're doing and you're less than. It's actually, you are really powerful and you need to come under. Men in gentleness, love and lead. You are the head. It's a whole different perspective. It's not men, you need to be the head because they're controlling. Like, you've got this weird sense of like, well, I wonder where women got that or why you're told those things. Well, it's because it's chapter two. But when you understand that cycle, you can step out of that battlefield and you can untwist it and you can bring the redemptive side, which he gave the answer to right away when he says that she's going to carry the seed. He doesn't stop there. He said, and in you, you will crush the enemy. So you're not stuck in this cycle, especially to be transitionaries after the fact with Yeshua. Because of him, we have access to unwind all this and to untwist all this and to step into our proper role. Amen? Um, so we have to understand um, that, and this is not just husbands and wives, it's just males and females, because ultimately what happened at sin was selfishness came in and what, what, what we're seeing here is instead of serving each other, like we saw when he goes, at last, my helper, you begin to see a process of 
independence, and being able, you're basically selfishly striving to protect our own interests at the cost of others. Well, that's between brother and sister, that's between mother and daughter, that's between father and son. I mean, this is the epitome of, of chaos and selfishness to protect ourselves at the cost of other people, putting ourselves ahead of other people, right? Um, but what I want to, you know, bring forth in all of this is that we know that through Yeshua, we are a new creation. So when we're talking about a new creation, this is what we're talking about to be a new creation and know what our role is and how to untwist it and walk out that proper role. You are an ambassador. You are a representative of kingdom and what he says about male and female being together, not being selfish, being in joy, being in honor, understanding helper, understanding leadership, understanding all of that is a picture of what he created in the first place. That is how we dispense his name. That's how we release his name. Amen? It's not handing out a trap. You can hand one out, but people are watching your character with the other sex. Because it's the foundation. It's the relationship. That's why he's neither male nor female. Just between the two of us, we are a full picture of expressing male and female in him. And if I'm not emulating, is that the right word? If I'm not representing who he is, then, then there's a false picture of what of, of what he of what he has. So um Okay. Yes. I think I'm going to end there. That basically just we know through Yeshua by his mercy and by his grace we can take back we can take back the original intent of what we were created to do to walk in covenant. We have the ability to take that back and to restore the beauty of husband and wife or restore the beauty of covenant or restore the beauty of male and female to walk selflessly, to walk fully as, as a um, as an equal partner and helper and for men to be able to walk in their role and to, to get loud and be the protector and, and all of those things that come, it, it's just, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful opportunity uh, that we have. And that's what it means. That's what that means when we say we want to unwind and go back to the original intent, because this is the twisting of all of mankind moving forward. Um, For me, personally, it seems like a reintroduction to those scriptures of what it means, husband, love your wives, women, submit. Right? It's, it's, it's understanding what does, that even, what does that even mean, and what does that look like, and what do those words mean, and what is it that he's, um, what is it that he's giving us an opportunity to, to be able to present his name or present his character in its fullness to the world. And the reason why I kind of end with that is I know he wants to get into the apostolic church. And some of you may be like, well, how does this, how does this relate? But all of the apostolic writings are trying to put it back in order. That's why Paul constantly says, everything he says is to unwind what happened in chapter 2. 
That's why they talk about submission. That's why he talks about leadership. That's why he brings forth. It's not just a good concept for marriages to follow because it'll work. Hey, if you do this, it'll work. It's a good advice. It's not good advice. It's literally an apostolic order scripture that puts chapter 2 back in its rightful place. Understanding the role of using those apostolic scriptures based on chapter 2 gives you a whole new foundation of why we walk the way that we walk in those things. Amen. Amen. Man, that's, that's a picture of like the fire of his word illuminating darkness. Like, I just feel like that whole spirit of his law just like liberated things in our lives that we just have not understood. And it's beautiful because we're, we're being purposed to go through the Torah portions and embrace his voice. And pure liberation is coming out of it. Um, that was super powerful. I'm like, I don't even, I, it's like all that's just hitting me that you can reduce when you boil everything down to corruption and death and sin in the world. It's because the first man was silent. Like that's just, that's crazy. And, uh, I mean, I think it goes without saying, but I would, I would, I would not want any other mother raising sons of mine. I would want the mother that raises my sons to to pull a knife out and be like, "You guys, sit your behinds down and let me straighten it out." Let me find you know? your voice for you. Um. So. Tonight is the first time that, and we're going to be doing this throughout the night season, Torah portions and the early church, quote unquote. And it's interesting because as she's teaching, it's just bringing up all these relations to to the kahal that I, you know, I I hadn't studied or thought about or planned on. Um, but I think that just like she's talking about a reintroduction in the original intent, that as we engage in essentially our identity corporately as an assembly, right? We we expose lies, we discover what our our identity is here, but then being able to further identify like what are what are we designed for and how do we walk that out in the most authentic way possible. And that's what we're engaging with in the night season. And so I wanted to ask you guys, so when we talk about what what many people refer to as the early church, where did that come from in Scripture? When did that start? What book do you find the the birth of the early church? What was happening? Huh? It was an axe, right? Where were they? What was happening? They were in the upper room, right? Tongues of fire. They were all together in one place where Yeshua told them to go. They were waiting. And it's Acts 2, verses 2 through 4, is the birth of the early church. Now, I say commonly referred to as the early church because 
I'm, tr- I'm trying myself to work church out of my own paradigm. Because we are not a church. We've already established that. That is not what we're called. It has nothing to do with what he designed us for. That word is just not, just might as well erase it out of your mind. And it wasn't an apps either. Right. So what we are actually, and what the Hebrew word is, is kahal. Which still means assembly, but I want to talk about a critical aspect of what it means to be the kahal. And one of the critical aspects of being the kahal is this aspect of teshuva, which means returning to the original. So Yahweh built in to the identity of his body, his assembly, a main dynamic that you should be returning to the original. When you look at Acts 2 and what most people call the beginning or the birth of the the first church, right? That um, I would submit to you that cannot be true by definition because the kahal at that time was designed to return to something that was original. So by definition, that could not be the beginning because they were it was built into them to return to something. So when we think about the Kahal, I would submit that it wasn't... In order to understand what was happening in Acts chapter 2, we have to understand what was happening in the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament and references to the Old Testament... And what Yahweh's people, the nation of Israel, were taught to obey is woven all through Acts 2. So if you look at Acts 2, you're going to find out that it's it's very distinct in multiple locations when it references the apostles and what they were doing and what the early church looked like. It's marked and timed out by feasts and festivals that they were attending. Right? And I'm just going to keep saying it. The birth of the early church, because I want to make the distinction that Yahweh didn't, he didn't, because that kind of denotes that the Old Testament is being replaced, right? It kind of goes back to the replacement theology that, no, it really started in Acts chapter 2. So therefore, whatever was happening before is really irrelevant. Because that's when the Holy Spirit came, and that's when tongues of fire came and all this type of stuff. But we can't understand what was happening in Acts 2 if we don't understand our heritage from the Old Testament. And we don't understand his voice and his law. So Luke wrote the book of Acts. And the way that Luke was understanding what was happening in the book of Acts was a second Mount Sinai. What happened in Acts chapter 2 was during Shavuot. Mount Sinai and Moshe took place during Shavuot. Right? So let me just read the Acts chapter 2, verse 2 through 4. Well, let me before I read that, let me say this. When she's talking about what Yahweh intends to do is take things that are formless and void and fill it. I just want to read the definition of uh, formless. says, to lie waste, desolation, deserted, 
a worthless thing. It's in vain, confused, empty place, without form, nothing. Vanity, wilderness. Right? And void just means kind of the same, like it's it's a vacuum, it's empty. And so when you think about Mount Sinai, Shavuot, in the Old Testament, in Exodus, and you think about Shavuot in Acts chapter 2, and you have Apostle Luke, you have Luke looking at it like this is a second Mount Sinai. And the difference is something that was on the outside is being written on their hearts on the inside. Their hearts were formless and void of his law. So basically what Yahweh was doing, right, and we can see his, his, his character from the beginning is to fill things that are formless and void with his life. So basically what he did from Mount Sinai, where there was fire over every camp of Israel, there was fire. Does that sound familiar? Not over their heads, but over every camp in Israel, there was a fire that engraved his law on the tablets. Over each and every camp. Then when you fast forward to Shavuot in Acts 2, there's tongues of fire over everybody's head and the law is being written on their hearts. So he's taking something that was empty and he's filling it. When he created the earth, he was on the outside and he took his words and, and began to create and fill the earth. He's doing the same thing. And that's why I say this cannot be the beginning because what's built into our identity and what was happening at this, at this place and what's in our DNA is to return to something. So all of a sudden that makes sense that what he was trying to do was get them to a place to where they can activate their DNA and return to something because now they're no longer formless and void. His, his words, his fire is written on their heart now. So I'm going to read uh, verse 2 through 4. It says, Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And tongues like fire spreading out appeared to them and settled on each one of them. They were all filled with the Ruach HaKodesh and began to speak in other tongues as the Ruach enabled them to speak out. There was something restorative here when it talks about tongues of fire. What was happening because in, in other places in Scripture, it talks about his voice, his words proceeding from his mouth are like fire. So when it talks about tongues of fire, right, in our, like, Christianese, we think, like, tongues must mean, like, when I speak in tongues, right? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know. It just seems, it's just weird when you start to really understand things in the proper context. What was happening is his voice came out and it split into languages they could understand. Because his law is for every nation. If it wasn't for every nation, if it wasn't for just, uh, if it wasn't for Jews and Gentiles, it would have just come out in the language that he wanted it to, that his chosen people could understand. So when it talks about tongues multiple, his voice was coming out and splitting into languages people could understand. <laughs> Now when you go back to <clears throat> when you go back to Exodus in Mount Sinai, that same fire, his voice, that fire was hovering over each and every camp. The difference was his law was being written on tablets on the exterior. 
I want to read a couple uh, prophetic words as well to just kind of show what Yahweh was doing. And the whole kind of backdrop to this is to show that as the kahal, or as followers of the way, that the Torah is central, was central to their identity. This was the absolute foundation to their identity because Yahweh was putting his voice that was previously on the outside on the inside of them so that they could fully walk out Teshuva. They could actually be the Kahal because now they were equipped by the Holy Spirit to actually return to the original. Which in my mind means Acts 2 was not the birth of the church. If you go back to Exodus 18 with Abraham, he was he was called, he was identified and set apart by Yahweh and told that your seed, generations of descendants from you will be followers of the way. Right? The Haderic, the, the way was established in in Exodus 18, or excuse me, Genesis 18. Right? And you see this progression of what she said. You start you can see the place where the origin of where things started to get out of order. And that's why he built in that my people, their DNA is going to be returning to the original. It's like in our DNA. That's why we're even in this place. Because in each and every one of your DNA, you somehow got sent here and called here and in covenant because it's in your DNA to return to the original. If you have somebody claiming to be the Kahal or followers of the way, but it's not part of their paradigm to return to the original intent, then I would question, are you fully understanding the identity that you're claiming to be? Right? In Isaiah 2, 2 through 4, it says, It will come to pass in the last days that the mountain of Adonai's house will stand firm as head of the mountains and will be exalted above the hills. So all nations will flow to it. Then many nations will go and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of Adonai, to the house of God of Jacob. Then he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For Torah will go forth from Zion, and the word of Adonai from Jerusalem. When it talks about the mountain of Adonai's house, it's talking about Zion. First there was Mount Sinai. But then, just as Luke is understanding it, he's renewing the giving of the Torah on Mount Zion. So you have two mountains. The Torah is being given on both. It says right here, the Torah will go forth from the mountain of Adonai. That's what's happening in Acts 2. Okay? In fact, when you look at the history of Shavuot, Shavuot was commonly identified as... This, this is silly. Where is it? So Shavuot, when you go back in history, was commonly understood to be identified in different names. We know that the feasts have different names, right? Shavuot, Feast of Weeks, Feast of the Ingathering, Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, right? There's all these different names. Well, Shavuot was commonly referred to at this time in Acts 2 as Yom HaKahal, the Day of the Assembly. Right? Or... Um, I'm trying to think of the other name. I might say it wrong. Yom Matan Torah, the day of the giving of Torah. 
Shavuot in Acts 2 was commonly known as the day of the giving of the Torah. Not the birth of the church. Wow. That replaced all the old. There's no name at all that says now we're the light of the world and the assembly that doesn't that broke that broke away from the old, like the birth of something new, right? It, it's Yeah. Hebrews eight ten through twelve says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says Adonai, I will put my Torah into their mind, and upon their hearts I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no more will they teach each one his fellow citizen and each other his brother, saying, No, Adonai, because all will know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and their sins I will remember no more. Right? These prophetic words are talking about what took place in Acts 2. And I, I mean, this is just scratching the surface, but I, I think it's enough to show that as we get into this for the night season, before we get into anything else about what the true kahal is, what the true way is, that we would first understand that as we're walking, beginning to walk through Torah portions, that we understand that how amazing it is that he's also having us study our true identity and how Torah is central to that. And when we say, when we consume his blood and we say, it is written, it's like, I mean, that's Acts chapter 2. Like he wrote it on their hearts and we're physically engaging that right now at the same time we're embracing Torah portions and at the same time that he is giving us the grace and the privilege to understand this part of our identity about going back to the original. If we're going to be a kahal, we need to understand that the Torah was central to everything they did. Central to everything the apostles did at that time, right? We've already spent the last night season going through breaking down the lies about, you know, that would say that the, the replacement theology and this was the birth of the early church because this is in and now these things are out. We know that's false. Yeah. But this is just another affirmation to understand that the way Luke was understanding it was that he was renewing his Torah, but he was filling it on the inside. It was the day of the giving of the Torah. That's what they knew it as. That's crazy. Right? Nobody's going to teach you that. So, The day of the giving of the Torah, which is, which is taught on, is ultimately the fulfillment of that second major feast. That's why it's been fulfilled, just like Pesach. It actually happened. The day of the, you know, the day that Torah was given, it was a fulfillment of what had happened. But to put it in this perspective, we've learned it from the feast perspective. This perspective is untwisting any remnant of what church should be. That you know, when he says, "I would submit to you that if somebody says that they're a kahal and they're not returning to the original intent," but I would, I would say they're probably not using the word kahal. But I would say that if they say that they're a church and they're not going back to the original intent, then you have to question whether or not what are they mm -hmm. serving then. You know, in the sense of using the word church, because not only was it a fulfillment of the feast, but it's it's learning it from the feast perspective is one thing, but then learning it as the identity of an assembly brings it to another whole level. We're not just learning about Shavuot and Mount Sinai and Pentecost being the fulfillment of Shavuot, but now we're learning that as an assembly, 
This was their birth. Yeah. Was that the Torah was written on their heart and it is finished. That is what Pentecost was. We've all celebrated it forever. Mm-hmm. Not knowing that what we were actually celebrating is that they were declaring that everything that was was actually coming inside of them. That is the birth of the assembly and why they served one another, why they laid down their lives, why they gave up house, why they gave money to the apostles. Why did they send? We're going to get into so much. It's ridiculous Mm -hmm. for this night season. And, and, And so we know this, but this is coming from the perspective of what is the foundation of an assembly? There's the Torah. It's the only reason why they were together. Yep. If you're not getting together, if Torah is not the center, feast. then why are you getting together? And I would submit, then what are you then what are you serving? Come on. Because yeah. if it's independence, Satan. Yeah. Yeah. But if it's dependence voice. on his voice and dependence on his instructions, okay, now we're now we're working with some kingdom. Absolute <laughs> deception yeah. in the church. Yeah. Absolute deception. Yeah. In, well, so the word kahal, the word kahal is mentioned 39 times in the Old Testament, just to give you an idea that what we're identifying with didn't, it wasn't never heard of until Acts 2. It wasn't something that was never mentioned until that time. And Acts 2 does say kahal, not church. I just want to make sure I make that distinction because it's easy right. for us to understand. Oh, yeah, of course Old Testament said it. Right. But the New Testament said church. No. And I, I want us to remember that this is this is a process of self-identification that could be lifelong. Um, there are people who are operating in this to a level that to me is amazing and they've been pursuing it their entire life. What we are truly supposed to look like um, and the other thing I wanted to mention, and I'll end with this, is that there are certain things where you will not find the fullness of this identity. You might find an aspect of it, but you will not find the fullness. And it's kind of a list. So Orthodox Judaism, you will not find the fullness of what it means to be the Kahal. Conservative Judaism, Reform Judaism, Messianic Judaism, Hebrew Roots, the two-house movement, the sacred name movement, pronomian Christianity, meaning Christianity that is not opposed to the law, Catholicism or Protestantism. You may find aspects of what it means to be the Kahal, but you will not find the fullness of that in any of those things. And that's why I say this is a process, because you really have to get into the Word as a, as a sharp, double-edged sword and really cut and divide, like, you have to separate what is he called us to and what has he not called us to. And you can't mix, right? He separates. You can't mix things together and just say, well, this sounds nice. We're going we're gonna to embrace, you know, Catholicism, but then we'll be law-friendly. Or Christianity with a talit. Just to just because, like I support Israel, so I ordered a talit. You know, like this is going to be a process of of digging into this, and this night season is just one big introduction of who Yahweh has 
called us to return to. Like it's our, it's in our DNA, but he's calling us to return to it. So there's going to be a lot of interesting things that we're going to get into, and I believe it's going to solidify, you know, we've, we've experienced an exodus. We're, we've experienced how we identify ourselves and what our life is, uh, you know, founded upon. And now we're going to begin to understand, like, what did his assembly look like and what was the original intent for it and how did they operate how did they live life and how did that essentially bring light to the darkness because they embraced his word amidst a world that doesn't embrace his word so how do you actually illuminate the dark you know we're going to begin to understand that so i just want to remind us really quick um he's been carrying this word and this teaching for three years so when he's talking about foundationally that Torah was the foundation, I want us to remember our commissioning. Because the commissioning, when the name came, was sorting through all that. Are we apostolic Jews? Are we messianic Jews? Are we, you know, he was going through all this and sorting it out and trying to figure out what do they have, what do they not have, what is the fullness? And basically the most simplistic Con, con, not concept, but the most simplistic thing, just the word itself was your followers of the way. Let's go back to Abraham. That's what he was called. You are a follower of the way. That is what the the the, the beginning of the assembly after he died mm-hmm. was that they were followers of the way. And that is why that name came forth is to be able to bring out the fullness of what his followers of the way mean yeah. versus a title or a group. Because you can find them, like you said, there's Hebrew roots, there's 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 so there's so many things out there and again they all have those concepts but I love it that he gave us followers of the way because it's the, just the most scriptural simple but it's a journey we're following yeah. truth well truth is all over the place I Not, think I may have gone down in that three years every possible rabbit trail. Yeah. I mean, there might be some more, but I went down. Truth is a double-edged sword, right? Truth is truth. But to seek out truth is to not be fearful of weeding out every possible. That's why you'll stare it down, look at it, move it, and you you just keep you, you just keep following the way. Yeah. <laughs> so. Lifelong pursuit. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Well, thank you guys for, um, I, I keep thinking back to Tabernacles when you released on, like, to remember that there have been those who have gone before us, and I think I can speak for everybody in here, that we're just thankful that you guys will walk this out. I, I personally, like, like, want hungry for truth, but knowing that we're in, we're in a safe place because we have a family who is being led by you guys who continue to seek truth and are leading us in that and leading us out of that old structure and then into to being like to, to Shuba to get back to that place where we are in our original state. I I don't know if there's enough words to thank you guys for just continuing to show us truth, continuing to show us where the separation is in our hearts from him and what we need to do to get back to that. Thank you for listening to this message from Kingdom Heirs International. 
If you have received insight and revelation with this message, we invite you to claim that revelation by trading on the trading floor with this ministry. You can do that at kingdomairsflag.org. Thank you.